Would you open God's precious holy word to Luke 22? We've come to chapter 22, and actually we're going to be beyond, I hope, be beyond verse 6. I'm going to try to work our way all the way through verse 23. We'll see how that works out. The comfort of sovereignty in the midst of tragedy. Part one to this message was last week. And I introduced to you the foundational scriptures that adamantly pointed to the sacrifice of Messiah, Old Testament. Been telling you all the way through the Gospel of Luke how the theology of the Jews in Judaism at that point in time was erroneous in many ways. They had added so many traditions of men and equated them to the, to the Word of God, the law of God. And they just simply refused when thinking of Messiah... They simply refused to address the prophecies in the Old Testament about the first coming of Messiah, the, the servant Messiah, the crushed Messiah, or according to Daniel, the murdered, the cut off, murdered Messiah, or according to Psalm 22 and, and Zechariah, the pierced Messiah. They just wanted to, you see, and I say this all the time, but it was a, it was a religion of works. It was a religion of, of behavior and codes of conduct. And, and it, it had totally swept grace aside. God is so holy and we are so depraved that we cannot be saved but by the grace of God. There's no work I can do. I cannot add to what Christ has done, who himself on the cross exclaimed, it is accomplished, it's finished, it's done, it's over. Another way to translate that particular Greek, that's a long compound Greek word, that is, that is it's accomplished, it's finished, is to say it's, it's perfected. In other words, there's nothing we can add to the work of Christ. There's nothing that we can do to really come to Christ. We can't work our way to Christ. We can't say, I, I will on this day be saved. It is all of the grace of God. According to his sovereign purpose and will. So then... We're looking, of course, at, at the time of the Passion of Christ as we, after all these many, many months, even years in Luke, are winding down to the completion of the earthly ministry of the Christ. Sovereignty in the midst of tragedy. We're going to see, and we've, we've already introduced the truth last time that man is not in control of these events. 
Rome is not in control. The Sanhedrin is not in control. Judas is not in control. Satan is not in control. God is in control. Christ said, it's in John's gospel. No man can take my life. I will give my life of my own accord. In other words, in the way that I will give my life. I mentioned last week in gospel, from the gospel of John how when Christ told those who had come to arrest him, and there had to have been hundreds of them, we noted by the language that's used in the Greek text, when he acknowledged to the arresting officer, I am the one you're looking for, all of those soldiers, hundreds of them, fell down, knocked them down just with the truth, the thought of the truth. I think, to make the point, that it doesn't matter if you had every legion of Rome here. Nothing can take me to that cross unless I go by my own accord. In accord with the design, plan, purpose of God. We looked last week as well. This whole thing started in a realm that we cannot understand. The Revelation 13 Talked about those written in the book of life, in the book of the Lamb, rather. The book of the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. We looked in the book of Hebrews and we noted the eternal covenant that is between the Father and the Son. There's, there's something afoot here that is greater than all of the forces of creation. Because we are nothing but forces of creation. But our creator is in absolute control of this whole thing. Let me tell you why that's so precious to me and I hope to you. That it was not an afterthought of God that I would be saved. It was in the eternal mindset of God. I couldn't have known this. I couldn't have, God worked it out in time. What God had determined in eternity, he worked out in time according to his will, plan, and purpose. And justice must be met with love. Love must be met with justice. Man cannot work himself into heaven. God must grant it to us as he sees fit. All of these things come together in the passion of Christ at the cross of, of Christ. The divine sovereign will that sin can collapse into its worst state. But where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. It all started, in my opinion, with, with a chaotic scene into which God, which was called darkness, into which God 
introduced light. He created light. God said, let there be light. And God separated the light from the darkness. And there, there's more than just, there's more than just a, a, a physical chemical reaction. There's something else at work here and it works itself all the way through the scriptures even into the new heaven and new earth where we are told there is no night there. Darkness is gone. And there's this struggle between light and darkness. And it is all at the end of everything to the glory of God. We see some awful things in our lives. And with our finite minds and in our yet-to-be-glorified selves, in, in this state, I cannot understand how God can be glorified in all that happens. But I am told in his word that he will be. Now, my job is to accept that. I'll understand it as he chooses to make me understand it in the by and by. Part of this great plan, the Father gave to the Son those who would be His. In a realm we cannot understand, in a way we cannot understand, in a process we cannot understand, and that process then, to help us see it, works itself out in time and space, and the story of it is given from creation to consummation from the creation of the first heaven and the first earth to the collapse of it and to the creation of the second heaven and the next, the new heaven and the new earth at the end of it. A lot, of, a lot of things are left out because it probably is just too overwhelming for us. We, we couldn't receive it presently or understand it. God says, my ways are above your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. And so, unless God condescends to where I am and explains himself in a way that he, he knows that I can understand it. I'll never understand everything about God. Only what he chooses to tell me in his word, to show me in his incarnation, Jesus of Nazareth, and then to lift me up a little higher and the glorification of all things, new heaven, new earth. So here's an awful, tragic thing that's about to happen. It is, it's starting here with what we call the Lord's Supper, the communion. The last Passover. And then the awful things that happen to Jesus. But I tried last week to temper all of that with the Old Testament foundation of how this whole thing is designed, planned, and directed by God the Father to his glory and pleasure. It pleases him to do what is being done in this portion of Luke as we end it and go on through into the resurrection That the Christ who had come for this, I told you in John's gospel, he said, 
He said to Pilate, you don't have any authority over me except the, the authority that my father has granted to you. Pilate was saying to Jesus, to paraphrase, make a case for yourself. I know that you're innocent. Jesus wouldn't do it. This is what I came for. You don't have any authority in me except that it's been granted to you, my father in heaven. He had already said earlier, and it's recorded in John chapter 8, of these religious leaders, you are of your father, the devil. He's a murderer. He's the father of lies. So they're just compelled to do, as the children of Satan, what Satan is causing them to do. But in a, in a miraculous and wonderful way, it fits into the plan, purpose, will, and glory of God. Remember, back, I think it's around Mark 9, it may be in uh, Matthew 18, 19, somewhere, 17. Christ tells his disciples, I'm going to be delivered over and crucified. They're going to kill me. But on the third day, I'll rise again. Peter objected to that. Christ called him Satan. Because Christ, the whole story of the Bible, all of the Old Testament, all of the offerings and blood sacrifices, everything. And none of them were sufficient because it had to happen over and over again. Nobody could ever be satisfied, especially God. God could not be satisfied with blood sacrifices that came from animals. But it was a, a lesson An unending lesson that ended at the cross. Blood sacrifice. So Peter, who said, no, I'm not going to let you die, was just speaking the things of Satan. And in the greater context, Jesus says, what, is it, what's it, what are you going to be gained you know, they've been arguing about who was first and who was second in the kingdom. What are you going to be gained if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? What does it profit a man? If he is first in the kingdom and yet is unsaved. Well, nothing. He loses everything. It is by the design of God that Christ is going to the cross. Now... In the truth of the scripture that knocks me down to my face and if I could get any lower than that I would is that I am in that eternal covenant and Christ did it for me. I was in his heart And everything that is wrong with me has been, will be, bad, sin, flaws, defects. And yours, if, if you're his, were upon him. And so I died on that cross in Christ. And all of this awful stuff about me. 
was buried in that tomb. Christ carried it there. And I was raised with Christ. And some infinitely glorious day, the promise becomes a reality to me. It's already a reality to the Father in heaven and to the Son who died for me. And I think of all of the history of the world and whatever may be left yet to be done in the history of mankind. All of the so-called accomplishments, all of the so-called tragedies and events, everything. And yet above and beyond all of that, and before all of that, he has me. In his book. And he dies for me. And for you if you are his. So I'm about to see some awful things here. But I'm comforted. In the sovereignty of God. You know the only thing that makes me. I try my best. <laughs> And it seems like the older I get, the, the harder it is. I try my best not to stomp, snort, kick a cat, and cuss <laughs> over everything that's happening in the world. It's awful. I have this one comfort, but God is sovereign. He has already appointed a better day for me, a victory unspeakable in the minds of depraved men, but as real to me as anything else in my life. God's great victory through Christ over all of sin. People ask all kinds of silly questions because they arrogate themselves into the realm where God is. You'll never make it there. Even in the new heaven and the new earth, God will still be above us. He's God. And we're not. So there's no, to me, in the regenerated born again life, there's no question to ask about God. The regenerate spirit, the Holy Spirit in me, bearing witness to my spirit, rejoices in whatever God's word says. I don't have a question about it. I don't always understand it. But if it's there, I'm going to enjoy it. The comfort of sovereignty in the midst of tragedy. It's sort of really... Parallels itself to every era of life and time. But here in this passage, illustrated by what is happening 
with Christ. So let's look at it. This is the part two of this sermon that I started last week. I call it the fruitless assault on the sovereignty of God. You know, the second psalm says, why do the nations rage against God and his Christ? They do. They do today. They rage against God and his Christ. Think about it. The concept of God seems to be acceptable to most people. But the concept of God and his Christ really draws battle lines with people. The fruitless assault on the sovereignty of God. Well, let's start it. This assault has always come, and we see that it comes the same way in the time of the Passion of Christ through the religious, political, and academic world. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was drawing near called Passover. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. They had a, we, we've, we've seen all this leading up to this, especially the final week here after Palm Sunday and the extensive portion of Scripture given over to the teaching of Christ in the temple that we've looked at. This is, this is Wednesday night going into Thursday, and he'll be crucified on Friday. Now, I have to draw on the other gospel accounts outside of Luke. The chief priests were there. The scribes, the chief priests, well, they were like the religious world. The scribes were the academic world. They were the lawyers, the scribes. Other passages in other, in other uh, accounts of the gospel tell us, and we saw it leading up to this in the days leading up to this as well, that people who generally don't get along well have come together here to conspire for the death of Christ. Among them outside of these were the elders, religious world, and Christ has already, in his mighty teaching, especially on Wednesday of this week, has destroyed the concept of Judaism, works, salvation. So you have the religious world with the Sadducees, you have this strange mixture of the religious and political world because the Sadducees were sold out to the Romans. Then you had the Herodians who were sold out to Herod, who was a king. So that's a political world. We see here how the religious, political, and academic world all came together to destroy Christ. I think of today. I think of the blessed holy word of God, the witness, the testimony that we have of Christ who loves us. For the church, the true living church who calls out to lost people to be saved, to repent of sin and to come into the glory 
of the salvation of Christ and find the peace and the reconciliation that we have with God through Christ, our Savior. And the religious world comes against us. And the political world comes against us. And the academic world comes against us. And the world system controlled by Satan comes into such a situation that these people become elite. And as elitists in the world, they are placed in positions of authority and power. And they try to silence the church. Don't bring the testimony of Christ into the public place, into the school, even into religion. The political world, from, from the local councils all the way up to the Congress, especially in these last days, are finding it strangely popular to come against Christians you cannot preach from the Bible because it's a message of hate. For God so loved and to the world for God so hated. So we're to be passive and surrender. No, 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 we cannot. This conspiracy against God and his Christ has always been. But the point that we started making, started seeing last time is that these people are not in control. Let me tell you, the professors and their, their idiotic speeches, the, the actors and actresses, the, 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 the athletes that the, 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 the go for these weird lifestyles that are introduced today, all these things that are that are simply labeled sinful, damnable by the Bible, somehow, somehow this is all working together. In the sovereign rule of God. Now if you ask me to explain it, you're asking me to be God and I cannot. There is coming a day, however, when his glory will be revealed, and as the old song says, we'll understand it better by and by. What does it go? Trials dark on every hand, and we cannot understand all the ways that God would lead us to that blessed promised land. But we'll understand it better by and by. You can imagine how the 12 in particular and the outer rim of disciples in general felt when they began to see things that they had revered all of their lives, first of all condemned by Christ and then conspiring to kill Christ, the one who had demonstrated such great love and power. who would save those who were otherwise outcasts to the religious world of that day. One of the great condemnations from the Pharisees was simply this. He eats with sinners. 
He sits down with sinners. He talks to sinners. Sinners need to be talked to. Christ said, I came to those who need the physician. And those who are well don't think they need the physician. But I came to the sick. So they're conspiring. How are we going to kill him? For you and me today, this is no surprise because we see how God has already said this is going to happen. And nothing in this world, no force in the world is going to keep God from sending his Christ to the cross. And I thank God for it because he cut the covenant and paid the price. And I'm free. I'm free from the bondage of sin, the bondage of death, the threat of hell. I'm, I'm, I'm freed from those things. And so I look at things today and I consider what the prophecies say about his second coming. And I dread these things. I don't mind telling you for the sake of my, especially my grandchildren. Doctrines of demons, perilous times, itching ears. Those things trouble me. I see it already coming from every corner, even from within the so-called church. But God has a plan. And this is what comforts me. In the midst of tragic situations, I am comforted by the sovereignty of God. I already know how it's going to work out. Well, after that, Satan and his children. In John's gospel, in John 6. Jesus said to his disciples, I have chosen the 12 of you and one of you is a devil. Now isn't that kind of eerie? He's on a path to the cross. You know, Paul says to the Romans, The clay doesn't tell the potter how he wants to be made. Potter sitting there shaping up a spittoon. The spittoon is not going to say, hey, wait a minute. You're making me a spittoon. I want to be a, a wine jar or a plate for bread. It doesn't happen that way. I just collapse into the presence of a sovereign God. And Jesus said, one of you is a devil. Now, here we are. Satan and his children. So what happens? Then Satan entered into Judas.
If someone has done this, I do not make mockery. But I simply state this fact as I have observed it. I don't see people naming their kids Judas. There's John, Peter, Paul, Mark, Thomas, Matthew. Satan entered into Judas. Entered into him. Jesus had already said one of you is a devil. The one called Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. That's amazing. The little book of Jude talks about people who are Satan's children, but they've come into the church. I may have, I may have met a few of them along the way. I don't know. I'll leave that up to the Lord. And having left, he spoke with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray him to them. And they rejoiced and agreed to give him money. And he promised and began seeking opportunity apart from the crowd to betray him to them. So when does it happen? It happens when everybody's asleep at night. We're going to see here, I don't think I'm going to get to through with it. Jesus secretly sends Peter and John. He doesn't want, he doesn't want this guy to know where they're going to go. Jesus knows all of this. Jesus is God in the flesh. He knows the thoughts and minds of men. He knows the Father's will. He's headed to accomplish it. So here is one of the children of Satan. Now he begins to seek opportunity, apart from the crowd, to betray him. Now is Judas in control of this? No. The sovereign Lord God is in control of this. He will send his only begotten son to the cross. And this strikes me to worship and praise that he did not spare his son so that I could live forever. Satan's children, among them Judas, began seeking opportunity. Now, this is the long part. I may not get through with it. We don't want the Methodists to beat us to the diner. The eternal will and purpose of God in every detail. Look at this. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which it was necessary for the Passover lamb to be sacrificed. He sent Peter and John, saying to them, Having gone, prepare for us the Passover that we might eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you enter into a city, a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now we're talking about the Passover season. Millions of Jews. But there's this guy. Women carried the water. Deal with it. And here's a man carrying a pitcher of water. Peter and John. Hey, there's a guy. 
Look at all these women with water. There's one guy over there. He has a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. Having gone, they found it as he said to them. And why is that not a surprise? And they prepared the Passover. Notice. When the hour was come. How many times had Christ said in his ministry, the hour is not yet come? But it has now. And when the hour was come, he reclined and the apostles with him. He said to them, eagerly I have set my heart upon this Passover. Why? Because it's the last Passover. It's the last one. There won't be any more Passovers after this. Now people may celebrate it, but it's meaningless. To eat it with you before I suffer, for I say to you that I will never ever again eat thereof until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So the, 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 we're told in Ezekiel that, there's a, that there is a, a temple in the millennial kingdom of God, of Christ. People are called in an organized fashion according to the calendar of that time. To come and worship and learn. And there will be another Passover. Not to celebrate what happened in Egypt. But to celebrate what happened on the cross. So. Having received the cup. Having given thanks. He said take this. Divide it among yourselves. I say to you I'll not ever drink from now. Of the fruit of the vine. Until the kingdom of God shall come. Now this makes them happy. You know how they've been excited about Jesus coming into the, to Jerusalem. And introducing the kingdom of God. He was the Messiah. And they still were confused about the suffering servant. He gives them the promise. The kingdom is coming. Having taken the bread, given thanks, he broke it, gave to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Remember this. Do this in my remembrance. The cup likewise, after which, having supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is being poured out for you. This is the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel, what, 36? The new covenant. Because it, 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 it fulfills the old covenant. There's no need for rituals. There's no need for sacrifices. There's no need for that stuff anymore. It's fulfilled and there's a new covenant. A covenant of forgiveness. A covenant of salvation. And all of those former things having been fulfilled in Christ. And Christ will hang on the cross and give his blood to ratify that eternal covenant that the Father made with the Son. Poured out for you. But behold, the hand of him betraying me is with me on the table. He knew. For indeed the Son of Man goes. Now that word in the Greek text up there means to go. It means to go on a journey, a path, to take a, to take a highway, to go the right way. The Son of Man goes the path according to that having been determined. 
But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. They began to question among themselves. Who then it might be of them who's about to do this? I've gone through a lot of scripture today more than I usually do. But I underlined and I wanted to point out the ways that this whole thing is orchestrated, guided, and purposed by God Almighty. The Son voluntarily, by the will of the Father, going to the cross to do for his own what nobody ever in this world or life or history could do. For in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made Alive. By one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. So the death has passed on us all. But by the obedience of Christ, we have life. His death appropriated by faith according to the grace of God as he would call us to himself. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And He came into the world to save sinners. You want to be saved? You start by being a sinner. I am a sinner. You're invited today if God calls you into His salvation to acknowledge that call. To repent, confess sin, believe in Christ, and call on Him to save you. Just a moment, we'll stand, sing our song, or we'll stand as she plays. We'll prayerfully stand in a moment. And you're invited to come. Take me by the hand and say, Pastor Christ has saved me. Let me pray with you. And lead you into the next thing. Father God in heaven, Lord, speak to our hearts as only you can do. And bless this invitation according to your will in Christ's name. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Would you prayerfully stand all over this room?